Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. This is your host, Connor. As always, I'm here with the redoubtable Pete. And today, after a slight delay, we're discussing another canonical sci-fi text, very influential, uh, and one that I think we have very different perspectives on, and that is going to be Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. And Pete, do you want to tell us what that is and why it's so important? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think you're going to find this interesting, uh, Connor, because the the importance of the forever war was is so high to me. And I think to science fiction in general that um, up until very recently, I had diminished the author. Like when we did our Scalzi episode, I was like, hey, you know what? Um, the forever war, he wrote that. And then he wrote some other things that weren't of note. And I'll get into it, but that's not true. That's on me. I'm just so focused on this one book that it's like when you're looking at a mountain, you don't see the hills behind it kind of thing. So um, uh, the the Forever War is by Joe Haldeman. And Joe Haldeman was a, uh, he was a combat engineer in the Vietnam War. And his military experience was more like he showed up, he built some things, he was, uh, his area was attacked and he ended up with a purple heart and he went home. Like it was, I mean, he was certainly, it was, it was heroic, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't an interesting story. And so that experience and his other experiences and his discussions with other people about the Vietnam War led to the Forever War, which is a novel about... Um, a war that uses relativity to stretch on forever. Should I explain what relativity is, Connor? No, I think people get it. The point is just that time is lapsing at different rates for people in different places, right? Yeah, yeah. And basically, like, the the faster what you're on is moving, the slower everything else is moving in comparison to you in terms of time. Uh, I, I mean, I understand the concept, but man, I couldn't do the math. But the basic idea is these soldiers go out and they fight battles beyond the stars. They come back and like maybe they were gone six months and they return to Earth and it's been 600 years or a thousand years. And it's about a particular soldier who was actually in the Vietnam War and his his tour of duty in this forever war and how uh, like what what the war is like for him and what coming home is like for him. And um, it, it talks a lot about alienation and the pointlessness of war. And uh, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to fire all my bullets right here to use like the most wildly inappropriate metaphor ever. But uh 
what's what's interesting about this book, what's foundational about this book, is it's really the first science fiction book of quality that clearly articulates an effective way how like terrible and bad war is. And you'd think that would be a pretty like a common thought. Maybe everyone doesn't agree with it, but like it should be out there, but it really wasn't, certainly not at this level of cohesion. Uh, so, Connor, I'd like to ask you a question about this. Uh, for, we have had ongoing conversations about the Forever War now for, oh, it has to be months. We've dealt with this book together for a long time. Yeah, there's and, been some texting folks in the background. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have, you seem to have evolved on this book and I'm very interested in that journey for you. Could you talk about where you were, where you were, where you are and what brought you there? Well, Pete, I, this is where I have to confess. The truth is that, you know, while you were sitting in Vegas doing whatever it is you do, I went on a journey beyond the stars over the last few days and I was actually gone for like 40 years and I've gained a lot of wisdom now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> that would be cool. But it, so, yeah, I mean, I've evolved in a book. By the way, I would be so mad if they picked you, if the aliens picked you for the space journey and left me to rot there. I would I would speak to you for a week. Dad. Right. I've been doing a sci-fi podcast for like two months and you've been reading science fiction for 40 <laughs> years and you've really earned your stripes and I'm a, I'm a Johnny come lately. Right. So that, yeah, that would be, yeah. that would be very frustrating. I understand. Just yeah, cause it, your reflexes are better. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Um, yeah. So like, okay. So it's my views have evolved on a book, which is all about your views, uh, your, your perspective evolving <laughs> as things change around you, uh, which is interesting. But yeah, I think, I think what I didn't want to do with this book, I think what constantly haunts me in this project is, as as you all know if you're regular listeners, I come at this from the perspective of a, sci- a sci-fi neophyte who has not read very much science fiction, and I have a background in literary fiction, and I don't want to be a huge snob. I'm doing this podcast because I want to learn about science fiction, and yet I must confess, I I tend to see the flaws in canonical sci-fi books pretty quickly. Uh, I start raising objections. I, you know, my mind reverts to the kind of snobbery I was trained in, or maybe that is just an inherent part of who I am. Even with books that I like a lot, uh, that's something I have to confess and confront. And in this case, I don't know what I expected. This book came to me massively hyped, like the front cover blurb uh, on my edition is by William Gibson, just saying this is not only the, basically in so many words, this is not only the best like war sci-fi ever, but it's like one of the best war novels ever. Major praise from a major figure, and on and on like that, right? Like Scalzi, who we covered, who I like, uh, Revere's Haldeman. He's a revered figure, and I think that Pete touched on one thing that's really important here, which is that it's we take listeners to this podcast because you know Pete and I have a certain politics, and our culture is at a certain place uh, now. It is very hard, but very important to try to understand how different sort of the basic stance of American society towards warfare and militarism was. Uh, within well within living memory. I mean, Haldeman is still alive. Uh, many Vietnam veterans oh, yeah. are lots. Yeah, and, and you know, of course, it's not. We have not done away with war, but the point is that like it is now. It, it has become. I think it, even in my lifetime, it's become a lot harder. Fortunately, for politicians to be as bellicose and warlike, in certain ways at least, uh, as they were when I was a kid. And that's a great development in many ways. Uh, cast your mind back to this book coming out. I guess in what seventy four or seventy five, right? Yeah, it was 74. 
Right. And so that's as the Vietnam War is, I guess, has wrapped up or uh, everything except for the covert aspects of it have wrapped up or whatever complicated stuff was going on in that region. But <sighs> but basically, the war had been at home deemed a failure and, and that had been admitted for years at that point. And it, all of that bad stuff was going on and entering a period of trying to reckon with it and whatever. I'm not an expert on that. But um, – you have to, I mean, obviously, it's not for me to say, but I try to make myself imagine what this book would have felt like in 1975. And there's an introduction to my edition which, in which Haldeman talks about how hard it was to publish and how many publishers looked at it and said, this is great. This is really interesting. It's innovative. It's a great read. And you know what? We're not going to do this because it's just too touchy to do a genre novel or really, you know, do, do, really to do a genre novel about Vietnam. Any novel about Vietnam would have been controversial. There were some great sort of novels and nonfiction books coming out around that time, but like, especially in the realm of genre fiction where people go for entertainment. Yeah. And, and I, and this came out, it made, it was a big deal. It entered the canon, I think probably pretty quickly. And I don't want to ramble too much. I guess my point is I really wanted to see all of that in it. And it's just hard for me to see that. And I didn't enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed reading Scalzi, partly because Scalzi, for instance, is a guy who is, as many writers do, as, as perhaps the eternal condition of the novel, uh, more often than not, Scalzi is, ref he's referring back to storytelling traditions. It's it's a story about storytelling at one level. Uh, Haldeman is, is doing something much different. He's taking his experience as a veteran and he's fictionalizing it in a high concept way that allegorizes it and projects it into the future, all the tools of sci-fi there. And it's really neat. And um, I have a lot more to say about this, but I kind of want to kick it back to Pete and say, and ask him a question before we sure. dive into this, when did you first read this and what impact did it have on you at the time? <laughs> okay. Um, I first read this on a bus going home from my school, my college to visit, to visit my parents on like spring break or something in like 1991. And I finished it and I was like, that's a great book. And that was the extent of my engagement to it. I set it down. I couldn't even remember reading it. I couldn't remember the details until you and I reread it. Oh, really? So you only read it once prior to this? Yes, yes. And it was a, it was a weak read. And and can can we talk a little bit about why? Like one of the things that you and I agreed on, like at the beginning of this, is that we were not here to cancel people. Like this, when, when we, when we go through books, when we examine authors, like they're coming at things from different perspectives, from different times, and we're coming at it from different directions. It, it has not been our goal unless like, like if, if, if we pull up a Nazi, I'm not going to hold back. But in general, if, if somebody is coming with a sincere point of view, we want to examine the work as the way it was intended. But this work between when it was written and the 90s started getting touchy. Like, well, I guess a better way to say it was there were things I reacted to negatively in the book at the time. Specifically, can I do spoilers? Yeah, totally. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, like, like, the hero of the book leaves and he comes back and society has evolved to the point where everybody's gay. And the th gay in this, the idea was he tried to pick something that would like communicate that feeling of awkwardness and alienation. 
And like, obviously I can't speak for Haldeman. The man's alive. He can speak for himself. But I mean, the idea I got out of it in the nineties is like, Oh, everybody's a homo. And I got really uncomfortable with that at the time. That's interesting that, I mean, good for you, you know, 20, over 25 years ago, having that reaction. I, I want to say folks, I, I don't think that, you know, for a book written 45 years ago that addresses things in this way, I don't. I I didn't find myself offended by it. I, I don't know how the, how the people feel about it, but I think that it, basically he's just he as Pete says he's searching for a mechanism that would feel alienating. Where it's like, and, and it's important to say here, the government has made everyone gay, so people won't reproduce outside the boundaries of what the state wants, and that is deeply creepy and weird because it's enforced by the state, not because of the fact of homosexuality, but uh, the sort of the authoritarian nature of it is creepy and, and strange, right? But, you know, I, so I, I don't think Haldeman is going overboard with homophobia or anything. I think that it just feels immensely quaint. Quaint is the word I would use. It feels yeah. it feels outmoded and archaic, and that is something you always have to grapple with in these older books. But I'm interested that you found it so uncomfortable in 91, actually. And and less so now. When I reread it, I wasn't uncomfortable with it all. And I found it quaint, too. Like, something, this this concept went from shocking and subversive to... Uh, at least, at least from my point of view, to uh, to reactionary and offensive, all the way to quaint and kind of progressive for its time again. And like the book hasn't changed. I think just like my understanding of the world has changed over the. You know what we're doing is we keep repeating the structure of this book, which is we keep talking about how you dip in and out of relationship with this book as you change and the world changes and the book changes. And that's what the book is about. Yeah. <laughs> I love that we're just reifying, <laughs> reifying the themes and the structure of the story. This is, this is great. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Well, and it's kind of cool. Yeah. The other thing is like the book really communicates how the, the war itself is non-heroic and pointless and boring and cruel and unfair. And like it, it says those things and it describes those things. But the combat communicates that it's boring by boring you. Like yeah, it does not, it, yeah, it does not have good fight scenes. That's yeah. an interesting point about it. Yeah. And, it's and not I, mean, like, I think that was his experience as a soldier. Like, he was a combat engineer. He wasn't running around with a pistol, so he's like, nah, nah, putting up the bridge, putting up the bridge. I got shot. So, that, like, that's the story he brought, and I think it's a common one. Right. Well, to give to dive in a little bit here, like, there, he is in the unit that is the very first to encounter Tarans, which are the eternal enemy alien race in this story. Uh, he, his unit, when he first deploys, is the first to encounter Tarans in ground combat, and they butcher the Tarans, and it's not very interesting um, and I said, it's, it's a radical choice in, in the context of it's so, it so defies convention. It's neither especially traumatic for him. Uh, it's certainly not, it's not super interesting for us as readers. And I think you could, you could bat back and forth how much of that is, how much of that is a sort of very clever, intentional, artistic choice and how much of it is a first time writer maybe being shaky about a few things. And again, uh, this is a revered book, so people don't go that route usually, but that's always <laughs> – when I read first novels by people, I always have those thoughts, and it might, might just be me projecting. But, um, yeah, it, it, and, and it, you know, this is, Pete, where I want to say what this most reminded me of, the way I access it is I wrote uh, my master's thesis about uh, British combatant memoirs from the Spanish Civil War. So it was Brits who'd gone to Spain and fought 
on the side of the Republic, on the left-wing side, and their memoirs. Okay, now you need to read Declare as a side note, the Tim Powers book, because the main character is one of those people. Great. Well, I'm gonna we'll get to that hopefully at some point because yeah, that's sorry. Okay. No, Keep that's going. great. <laughs> but I, I'm bringing this in here because there's one really famous book that fits that description, and that is George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, one of my favorite oh. books. Folks, if you haven't read it, have you read it, Pete? Yeah. Right. So if you haven't read it, it's considered widely one of the greatest books about war. Uh, it's one of my very favorites. And it's it's very much about how war is about being cold and tired and hungry and not much happening. Um, often like staring your enemy across an expanse and not doing a whole lot. Uh, and how it you know things kind of fall apart because the people in charge are corrupt or have the wrong motives or incompetent, whatever. Um and I wrote, also wrote, read a bunch of like more, much more obscure memoirs that no one reads anymore. But yeah, Haldeman, as, as one of our friends um, has in the Discord chat, by the way, folks, if you become a patron in the Discord chat, we have a great discussion community going and Pete and I are learning from it and drawing on it. Um, and one of our friends in there, I'm actually going to pull this up after this. I forgot to do that beforehand, but I'm going to pull up his blog post so I can quote from it. Yeah. But he was talking about being in the military and how this book was the first military sci-fi that he'd ever, he ever found when he when he first arrived at it that described the boredom and the, ha- actually had the grunt voice. That's how he said it. Just the um, – that captured the experience of – yeah, just being that lowest rung person in the military and and how time kind of stretched out before you and how how the broader picture was obscured from you and you just kept kind of doing your job. And um, yeah, speaking at that, that and, you know, kind of using things like homage to Catalonia to access it, I think in that light, it becomes a fantastic book, even if it wasn't my favorite to read, partly because it is so resolute in enforcing that somewhat boring reality on you. Well, and we're encountering that uh, or variations of that tool again and again. Like we talk about it in Us, how, uh, you know, it, it's it's not satisfying, possibly deliberately not satisfying that certain things aren't addressed. Or if we go back to Butler, Butler made choices to make people extremely uncomfortable as they read it because like she's not there to make you hug the book and giggle. She's trying to communicate something. And like we're running into it again here, and it's really fascinating to me. Before we started this, I didn't think much about that. I I probably would have agreed if you just said, well, you know, the function of this book is is entertainment, escapism. And a lot of these, that is simply not true. Like, if he's trying to make you escape, he's trying to make you escape to some place you don't want to go. Right, and I'm going to quote now from our... Our, pat- our, dear, our patron and dear chat buddy, Carlo Yeager Rodriguez, um, who posted this on their blog and shared it with us. And here's a section about the Forever War. In my very limited reading of military sci-fi, I've only really read one book that rang true to me, The Forever War. In it, Haldeman nails some of the feel of, en- of enlisted life, the long stretches where you're battling boredom in order to be ready for instructions from command. The pessimism that sets in when you're finally sent on mission with shoddy equipment. Great point. Um, that last point there, we, we haven't even gotten to. Like a lot of this book is taken up with descriptions of their cumbersome, dangerous, uh, kind of ineffective spacesuits that they wear to fight in. There's a lot of ink given to that. Probably more given to those than the feelings of the the protagonist. Um, sure, they use time dilation there. So like you, you'll have top of line equipment when you leave, but by the time you arrive, it's a thousand years out of date. Right. And when you encounter a new Taran ship on deployment, you don't know what their technology is. So they're because they're both sides are ramping up, you know, their war machine over a period of centuries and you just don't know what you're gonna encounter. Um 
And that is, you know, kind of mind boggling to contemplate. And it's, it's the kind of thing that's been, I don't know if he invented that device, but it's been stolen definitely by a lot of, uh, later sci-fi writers that we've already seen. Um, yeah. So I think this is, you know, I, I, I sort of wanted to come into this critiquing his writing style. And I don't feel as much of a need to do that just because I am always going to be so picky that I will always raise objections to prose. Instead, I'm just going to read from the opening, which I do often with these books because I think openings are important and a good way to get a sense of what's going on. Okay. Um, just to give anyone who hasn't read this, go ahead. When you're done with that, I'd like to give a formal apology to Haldeman and the world. So let, let we- <laughs> Well, uh, I'm going to hold us in suspense about that a little bit while I do this. Sounds um, good. This is the opening of the Forever War. Tonight, we're going to show you eight silent ways to kill a man. The guy who said that was a sergeant who didn't look five years older than me. So if he'd ever killed a man in combat, silently or otherwise, he'd done it as an infant. I already knew 80 ways to kill people, but most of them were pretty noisy. I sat up straight in my chair and assumed a look of polite attention and fell asleep with my eyes open. So did most everybody else. We'd learned that they never scheduled anything important for these after-chop classes. The projector woke me up and I sat through a short tape showing the eight silent ways. Some of the actors must have been brain wipes since they were actually killed. After the tape, a girl in the front row raised her hand. The sergeant nodded at her and she rose to parade rest. Not bad looking, but kind of chunky about the neck and shoulders. Everybody gets that way after carrying a heavy pack around for a couple of months. Sir, we had to call Sergeant Sir until graduation. Most of these methods, really, they looked kind of silly. For instance, like killing a, blow to, a man with a blow to the kidneys from an entrenching tool. I mean, when would you actually have only an entrenching tool and no gun or knife? And why not just bash him over the head with it? So I'm going to stop there. A lot of things you can glean from that. One is like... Great question about the stupid stuff that the command is doing. That's a constant recurring theme. Uh, why are we going through all of this? And I imagine that's a real problem in military life too. Um, also, he's appraising the female soldiers that serve on them. With, so women serve with the men on equal terms in combat. Uh, but there is something, you know, again, cancelable going on where it's sort of been understood in this military that like men men soldiers are in such desperate need of release, especially because the casualties are so high and the stress is so high that like when women arrive at a new base or whatever, like women like have to have a big orgy with all the men there. Like everyone has to have a big orgy and it's kind of implied that the women aren't necessarily crazy about it, but it's just something that has to happen. It's like a cultural moray that's been created and a military regulation, which is like, <laughs> you know, uh, it's cancelable, but like I'm not going to take the time to, to point out why that's, uh, a little bit over the top. Um, there's a there's a ton of that sort of thing in science fiction too. We could do a whole episode on you know the like mandatory gayness or mandatory orgies or you know all of that stuff. It's it's like from like 1950 to 1979. It was like all these guys talked about. It was bizarre, right? And yeah, so now now in writing across genres, male writers are encouraged. They don't they don't always do it, but male writers especially are encouraged to got to get their horniness under control. And that's probably a good, a good trend. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 45 years ago, I think, especially in, in the pulpy realms of genre writing, you were encouraged to be a lot hornier and that's whatever. That's fine. Um, well, it sold books. <laughs> sure. And, and again, to be clear, I was, tw- yeah. 
Oh, I was going to say, when I was 12 years old buying science fiction books, horniness was a value add. Right. And gosh, we already read some horny books like Neuromancer. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, whatever. Like, again, I'm not here to cancel it. It's just funny to think about. Uh, also, but the main thing going on there is that this is a really boring, irrelevant lecture that is not really staging. In that opening I just read, that is not really staging the stakes of the story. It's not trying to convince you that this is all about whether humanity is going to survive the space war. It's just about being a bored grunt. And that's what Haldeman does very well. I think if you're into that kind of thing, veterans love this book, man. Like so many veterans I know on Twitter have been like, ooh, Forever War, it's like my favorite book. I love it. I love it. So, you know, if you're interested in that mindset or if you are a veteran and you haven't read it, it seems like that's the, that's the consensus recommendation. Uh, is that fair to say, Pete? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best book that represents a certain point of view. And like, imagine cornering the market on war is bad in science fiction. Like that is, uh, that that's a section you want to be in. Right. So Haldeman's an important innovator. This book was a major turning point. We've seen some of the things that are influenced by it now. Actually, another thing that came up in our Discord chat, join the Patreon, that came up was, we were, we were talking a lot about Empire because we did Scalzi recently. And obviously this is also about a space empire, which is a recurring thing. And, um... People were talking just a few hours ago about how, you know, there's this trend towards uh, kind of woke deconstructions of empire in sci-fi. And that's kind of the new thing that the science fiction is grappling with is like, all right, we know that space empire is this ghost that haunts sci-fi. We know that it's a problem in a lot of ways or it can be critiqued. And what are we going to do with that? And gosh, I mean, Joe Haldeman uh, is <laughs> the single person, perhaps more than any other, who started that. Um, us down that road. Yeah. Well, and there's also a reaction to him that's going on too. Like, I, honestly, I think I think the the woke it maybe empire isn't so hot side of the argument is producing better books, but there's certainly a lot of empire and war is awesome books out there being chunked out, and every one of them that does has to grapple with the forever war on some level. Right. This is like this is, seems to be a reference point for sci-fi for my limited outsider understanding, and Pete's confirming it. In a way that, like, so few oh, things yeah. are. I think it's it's maybe on that Neuromancer level, even in some ways. Is that that might be a, too bold of a comparison? But like, this is a really influential book. Yeah, I I mean I, it it's very funny to me, and I think I think this is a good time for me to tuck into my apology. Um, he, this book is so seminal, and it's so influential, and it's. For just about anybody's science fiction top 10 list, it's in there somewhere. And it it's to the point where in, in our, our Scalzi episode, for example, I said something along the lines of, and he wrote The Forever War, of course, he wrote some other stuff, but those other things aren't really of note. And I just want to make clear now that I'm an idiot because uh, Joe Haldeman got seven Hugo Awards, five Nebula Awards, was a Science Fiction Writers of America Grandmaster, got the Damon Knight Grandmaster. Like, if this guy isn't a, a significant voice in science fiction, nobody is. <laughs> so this is a rare I, I, oversight from Pete. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, I, it never, like, I've never even looked at one of his other books. And I mean, that is absolutely what I'm going to do after this podcast. It's appalling that I would just take all of these award-winning books and put them in a box labeled Not the Forever War and gone on with my life because he has been he has been continuing to explore and evolve over like what 40 years 
Well, yeah, he's been publishing for four, 45 years, and he's I, you know probably still working on stuff. Uh, are, oh yeah. How how did this happen? Given given that you read such a huge amount, how how did you end up not reading more Haldeman? Um. Well, part of the problem is uh, so he wrote the Forever War, and then in uh, in the nineties he came out with two books, one called Forever Peace. And uh, the other one is Forever Free. And so, like, when you see a top-tier author write a book that blows everything else out of the the water, and then the other two books you hear about have basically similar names that are tied into the same series, well, it's actually, uh, it's, it's, it's like Scalzi. When you look at Old Man's War, he built a deep and fascinating world with some things that I very much disagree with in it, but it's a great world. It's really interesting. And then he wrote like four or five books after that in the same world. And I like the politics of those books better, but fundamentally most of the interesting stuff happened in the first book. That's where the world building happened. And so I'm, I'm wary of sequels and I think that's a part of it. And I guess the other part is, um, like once you agree with an author, unless you're like I, I, you know, I'm 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 actually making up justifications now. I can't do it. There is no good reason why I haven't read more of Haldeman, and uh, that's my homework assignment. That's my takeaway. I I just have to do better. <laughs> Pete, we all need to do better, man. It's okay. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I just I found myself coming up with compelling reasons that I was making up on the spot, and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's that's not okay. Dude. <laughs> This is interesting because I, I, you know, it's interesting for me. I, I see you as this immense repository of sci-fi knowledge and reading experience and to find your blind spots is really interesting for me. So I guess we have found one. Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is like one of the things that came up in the discord and can I, I can't I feel like we're overselling the discord. I don't mean to be. It's just it's really exploded in the past week or so. Like people are talking and interacting with us and coming up with ideas and going back and forth. And honestly, I thought the Discord was a bad idea when you first talked about it because I'm like, that's technology and I fear change, but whatever, we'll go for it. And I, it has, it's been a great add-on for what we're doing because I feel like I feel like our discussions continue in there, and that's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, uh, I have read some of the most evil military sci-fi crap you can imagine because. I just like to read sci-fi. And just because someone politically disagrees with me doesn't mean that I shouldn't listen. I mean, I should listen possibly with hostility, but I still feel like I should listen. So, like, I've gone out, and let me give everyone an anti-recommendation, okay? John Ringo. John Ringo has written a lot of military sci-fi, and in a book called The Hot Gates, he interrupts the action in the middle to do a five-page diatribe about how Fox News is not sufficiently right-wing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't want to use the word lunatic because, like, he's, he, 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 writes, he writes bangers. There's a lot of shooting. It's very exciting. He knows his audience. But fundamentally, from my perspective, certainly politically, the guy's a nut. And I've been reading him, you know? And if I can, if I can put so much effort into reading him, why can't I put more effort into reading Haldeman? I guess that's where I'm going. Uh, is Ringo one of the sad puppies, guys? Um, I, he, well, 
No, but I think it's because he was smarter than that. I think I think he didn't want people to uh, like he didn't want to become involved in something political that would make people stop reading his books. But like he he aligns with them so closely on so many levels, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, he wrote uh, a book, something on the Rhine. I think it's called Fight on the Rhine, where uh, there's an alien race in invading the Earth. They need as many troops as possible, and a group helping us comes up with basically a fountain of youth serum. And so what they start doing with the serum is taking all the old Nazis and injecting them with it. So you have young tank commanders ready to go, right? Wow. And the bad guys, yeah, the bad guys are environmentalists trying to stop uh, this. Okay, that sounds absolutely wretched. Well, I that I will never read that one, but uh, unless you lose a bet, my friend. Oh man. Or actually it's almost it's almost so bad that I almost want to read it and do an episode on it. But uh, either way, it's all all or nothing. But um yeah, let's do nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go back to Haldeman here for a second and just say I have a confession to make also. Sure. Which is that uh, you made your confession. I'll make my confession. For a lot of the time you were texting about this book, I had read all of it except the last chapter. <laughs> and the last chapter is what I read about uh, about an hour ago. <laughs> and uh, the last chapter in which, again, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, turn this off now if you don't want to hear this. But this is a spoiler. Um in the last chapter, you find out that they come back from their last appointment where the protagonist has been out with uh, this latest, like, distant generation of entirely homosexual soldiers, and they've had a really bloody battle, and they come back, and it turns out that all the humans that are left, or uh, pretty much all of them, are clones that are part of the same hive mind, and also that the war has been over for centuries, and that... They welcome back the old the old soldiers, but it's like, well, we're going to close the Stargate now, and all this is just a monument to our horrible folly in doing this war. And the soldiers are like, wait, what? Folly? What? And you find out that uh, you know the tar- that what had happened was the Tarns and humans were fighting because they didn't know how to communicate with one another, and it took the sort of clone generation of humans arriving to talk with the Tarns, who it turns out were also clones this whole time, and they could finally communicate, and they realized they didn't have a reason to fight each other. <laughs> after literally it's millennia wonderful. of war. It's great. It's great. Millennia of warfare. Millennia. And it's it's a great ending. Fantastic ending. And a lot of my opinions of this book were shaped by having read everything except that. Because I, as I was getting towards the end, I was like, this fight scene is dragging. I can't really follow what's going on. I don't know that I care what's going on. Where are we going with this? But then the ending hit, and I was like, that is fantastic. So um, it just is a good reminder to read the last six pages of the book. <laughs> I, I'll give you credit for honesty, man. And I think we've all done that with a book once in a while. Oh yeah. Uh, actually I did that with Wuthering Heights. Feel free to cancel me at will on that one. I just can't get through it, man. You can't get through Wuthering Heights? Pete, that's, no. Oh my God. In fact, I faked an essay on Wuthering Heights. That's shameful. That's one of my favorite novels. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we were doing a Wuthering Heights, uh, podcast, I would be canceled right now. However... (laughs) <laughs> However, we are not. You're safe for now. You're, you, this is, you're on safe territory. Um, All right. Gosh, yeah. What I'm trying to think of what else to say about this. I think we've done a pretty good job, kind of meandering around why it's so important. Um, yeah. Um, well, okay. C- can I talk about the continuum a little more? Oh, please do. Yeah. Um, 
so like in in, in the Scalzi episode, I talked about the military sci-fi continuum. So uh, all the way over on let's call the uh, the right wing side, uh, you have a book called Starship Troopers. Like you could probably find something to the right of that, but fundamentally, Starship Troopers is the military sci-fi novel that everybody looks to when they think right-wing sci-fi. And it is very much about uh, war being a necessary evil, so we better be as good as possible at it. It doesn't do any real examination of war, good or bad. It's a fight for survival. Um, and then somewhere in the middle, as as I said, we've got Old Man's War. Uh, this is often viewed as the the left-wing response. And one of the interesting things about this book to me is that when it came out, um, it's very well known that um, uh, that Robert Heinlein went over to Haldeman at the award ceremony and shook his hand and told him that it was one of his favorite books and it really connected with him. Ah, interesting. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because one of the things we are having... Uh, in this culture right now uh, is if you have uh, like let's let's say that I'm paranoid and I believe that the moon is one of God's stray golf balls like under normal circumstances like people laugh at me until I change my mind or shut up about it but these days I can go online and find a group of people who feel the exact same way and get my opinions reinforced, and I can go off into this world where I am less and less attuned to how everybody else reacts and feels. And one of the things that prevents that sort of thing is interaction with other people who disagree with you but do it in in a sincere and coherent way. And that's one of the great things about this book is it is an argument against war and it does it in a way it, it, it it's it's from a warrior to warriors I guess is what I'm saying and that is that is incredibly important like if I were the greatest writer in the world and spoiler I'm not I can barely write a grocery list uh, I could not do this book because I didn't have the background and I just like I wouldn't have the credibility. Haldeman does. And that's one of the things, that's one of the side things that makes it so valuable is because it speaks from a position of knowledge and takes a position that I think really needs to be taken. Because if you think about sci-fi, like if you close your eyes and you imagine what sci-fi iconic objects are, laser gun has got to be in the first two. Like fundamentally, science fiction is is a is a, a genre of violence. Right. We have a laser gun it's on our logo of, thing- of our podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And how many of those rocket ships that people imagine are armed to the teeth? I would say most of them. And that's because, like, we like war as a species. It's really interesting. It's cool. Like, we don't want to get attacked. But it's it's interesting stuff. It makes for good TV. And Authors who have who have seen the elephant, is that a cancelable phrase? I don't even know. But the point is, like authors like this who can come back and communicate sanity are incredibly important. And so, like, even if I didn't like the book, I would have to put this in my top ten. But I I, I love the book for the reasons you've talked about. Yeah, and I think I like it more and more the more I reflect on it. That was a great, a great point. Um just about how, you know, we, 
I was starting to go back to what Scalzi was saying about Scalzi. Like, Scalzi is doing exactly what I would do if I wrote war sci-fi. And, you know, my novel, for instance, uh, would not be classified as war science fiction, but it does have a lot of, it has a fair amount of combat and sort of paramilitary activity going on. And, uh, you know, what's my reference point for that? Well, books and movies and video games, obviously. I've never been to war. Um, You know, like most people, very few people in my generation, of course, have, have served in the military in any capacity, let alone in combat. And that's for the best in a lot of ways, right? Or most ways. Yeah. And 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 yet, um, you know, it, it does mean that when we that we examine these issues in storytelling, um, I can only sort of reference back to the references. And uh, there's it's not to say that everyone who's been to war can write a good war sci-fi or anything like that, but it's like the sort of the the, the value of having in this book a book like this, which is both entertaining. Uh, can be read like Pete read it on a bus ride, uh, and is also a very serious text about being at war and a very serious anti-war text, and that can mesh those two together. That can bring a lot of the great qualities of a book as revered and indispensable as a march to Catalonia, with the kind of pulp that someone like John Scalzi is playing on. To fuse those two together is a really important achievement, and probably one that doesn't get enough like sort of mainstream literary recognition, hence William Gibson's blurb saying, this is not just a great war sci-fi novel, it's one of the great war novels, period. And he's right. It kind of has to be. I mean, it, it, if you can fuse those together, you're sort of maximizing what you're getting, not just out of a straight-laced, here's what Mike's war experience was like, but you're using the extrapolative, imaginative, and downright entertaining tools of science fiction to make a very serious point. And I think that's a real, that's, you know, that everyone knows this is an achievement, and I just want to, um, just to say that, the more I think about it, the more I revere it. Well, I, I do need to engage with that because, I, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, but like when I was thinking about what I had said, on some level it de- sounds like I'm reducing writing to method acting. And I certainly don't want to imply that um, you, you can't write about things that you haven't experienced because there are whole genres of books that couldn't exist in that way. Like Tom Robbins would be out the window, you know? Um, so I like what, what I'm saying is like, I, 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 I guess I apologize if I made it sound like people shouldn't write about things just because they're beyond their experience. All I'm saying is that there's a, there's a real value when you can. Well, there is a really important debate, probably not so much in the sci-fi world, but in the literary world right now, really around the value of imagination or the viability of it, uh, which you're kind of hitting on a little bit, which is that the literary world has swung back, has swung in a direction where it's like people are really wondering how far outside of your personal experience should you be writing? A lot of people don't. I think people said this better than I, but like my friend Eric Hayne has talked about this on his podcast, Print Run, which you should listen to, folks, if you're interested in publishing. Eric's a great literary agent, and his podcast is probably the greatest uh, resource I've seen on what publishing is like. Sort of faces out to a layman audience, and, and Eric's hilarious. great on Twitter. Eric Hain, check out Print Run Podcast. But yeah, he's talking about this. This is a, just an ongoing thing where people often don't even want to treat fictional stories as fictional. They want to literalize them uh, in the most concrete way. And and so you, you have the literary world right now a debate, which I understand the basis of, which is like, should people write about characters that are from different demographic groups? You know. Um, should I, as a white guy, write about a black woman? Should that be my protagonist? Um, and there are lots of important points to be made there. I'm not taking a stance on this. I'm simply saying that is an ongoing debate. It's like the imagination of certain kinds, at least, I think is increasingly suspect in the literary world. There's a drive to literalizing stories, and there's an interrogation of what it means to imagine yourself in other situations that you can't access directly. And I imagine, of course, science fiction, by definition, can't quite have the same debate because it is 
about imagination. And of course, this <laughs> podcast, for that reason, one reason I'm doing this podcast as a lit- you know, as someone from a literary background is because I'm very pro-imagination. And I wanted to go to the one of the ultimate imagination genres um, and explore that realm. But yeah, I mean, what you're hitting on, Pete, is like, you, you, you didn't sound like you were saying this, but I mean, you're getting at the core of what is a really important driving discussion in the literary world right now. And I am intensely pro-imagination. I would also say that in Haldeman's case, uh, it's a good example of the value of sticking close to your own experience and perhaps not only just l- literally putting that experience down, but extrapolating from it and transforming it into something new and allegorical, which is exactly what he did so brilliantly. And I think that that is maybe in some ways the way to, to you know, one of the keys to get beyond arguments about what you're allowed to imagine is just to say, well, yes, of course, what you're writing about is in some way rooted in who you are and what you've experienced by definition. The question is just, how are you extrapolating from it? How are you turning it into something new? Yeah, this is very interesting to me because, uh, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not applying. I was uh, Laurence Olivier or anything, but I was definitely uh, theater was a big focus of mine in college, and uh, in in that convoluted major I designed myself, and I directed my own plays and that sort of thing, and it did come up a lot, like the Stanislavski method versus technique. And like, do you have to experience everything? And if you haven't, how do you tie it back? And the idea that that's an ongoing battle in literature is fascinating to me. And if it goes the way it could go, I mean, science fiction will be a backwater because it's like it's very it's very difficult to experience things that haven't I, happened yet. I feel I feel like an idiot. I, for I, I wouldn't it. worry about that, dude. I really wouldn't. I mean, I came to sci-fi or speculative fiction or whatever you want to call what I do. I wouldn't call myself a sci-fi writer, but I came into the genre world of expansive imagination organically. I came to it organically because I didn't want to worry about what I was allowed to imagine. And I think a lot of people will will keep making that move. And so I would say don't worry about sci-fi becoming a backwater. I think quite the opposite. I think one of my basic theses for this podcast is that sci-fi will continue becoming more important. And one of the key people we have to thank for that, that growing relevance and that sort of sense of vital urgency is Joe Haldeman. That's probably right. A place to, probably a place to leave it, roughly, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, we'll, we'll discuss it later, but I will say the idea of it, sci-fi becoming more relevant scares me too, but that could be a discussion for another day. Oh, wow, we're going to have to get back to that. That's, all right, folks, in the future, we're going to discuss why Pete is a parochial scaredy cat who doesn't want his favorite hobby <laughs> to be ruined by interlopers and normies on the internet. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, <laughs> everyone.